0: Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 340. Um, I'm going to gear this episode toward clockmakers and the clock trades, the the, the ancillary clock trades of the mid-17th to early 18th century. Clockmaking, particularly of relative simple types, such as long-case clocks, was often undertaken by a wide range of tradesmen. The making and especially the repair of a turret clock for a village church was often done by the local blacksmith. who was usually the person called upon to make the repair virtually anything made of metal. This background and experience in metalworking resulted in quite the number of blacksmiths or their sons becoming full-time clockmakers. These blacksmiths turned clockmakers had been turned clocksmiths. This may have been the the derivation of the term for works such as that of Robert Beforth, appointed as the keeper of the York Minister Clock in 1658, which was described as a locksmith and a clocksmith. But later, toward the end of the 17th century, and certainly by the middle of the 18th century, it does appear to have acquired another, subtly different, though undefined, meaning. It is interesting to note that in the 18th century, most of Somerset's church clocks were made by the local clockmaker, who usually only ever made one or two church clocks in his lifetime, rather than blacksmiths, who, those who specialized in this type of work. Clocks, particularly lantern clocks or 30-hour long case or wall clocks, are sometimes found with much of the movement made with iron where brass would be normally expected. And it's not unreasonable to attribute these to someone who had been trained as a blacksmith rather than being apprenticed to a clockmaker. A lantern clock, proudly engraved rather naively, John Baxter, Fecht, 1670, of Covderton, Worcestershire. Blacksmith has recently come to light, and others no doubt were made by blacksmiths who may have ever made one clock, possibly for their own use only. Another example is Edward Coulson of Lancaster, who was apprenticed as a blacksmith and whitesmith, and both made and signed clocks. He was a freeman in 1799 as a clockmaker, yet was still described as a blacksmith in 1784. Some makers of clocks preferred the style themselves as clocksmiths. For instance, the well-known Johannes Barber, senior of the Winster of Westmoreland, William Burton of Kendall, whose clocks are known as well as at least two of his apprentices, called themselves clocksmiths, while other were, were apprenticed to clock makers yet were known as clocksmiths. Others appear to have sometimes been called themselves as clockmakers, and at other times as clocksmiths. So they use three different scenarios for the term they're using about themselves, those who made and fixed clocks. Some who were known as clocksmiths appear not to have produced any clocks bearing their name. An example is John Colyard of Lancliffe, near Settle in the Yorkshire Dales, who was given as a clocksmith in a list of volunteers for military service for the Napoleonic War in 1803. Two others in the same list are given as clockmaker, so it is unlikely to have been exactly the same occupation. Another worker who was described as being in the trade of a clocksmith, yet does not appear to have produced clocks bearing his name is Edward Rowling of Dover, when his shop, goods, and tools were advertised for sale after his death in 1750. They included clocks, new and old, watches, and engines for cutting clock wheels, a barrel engine, clock lathes, which is a lathe, and vices and other tools and things in the said trade. As no work by either of these men is known, it is likely they made clock components, Or even completed movements for the local clock trade. The supply of parts to the clock trade is discussed and will be discussed later at the next episode. One clocksmith who left a very detailed inventory of his tools is Dale Deal of Ashford, Kent, who died in 1687. It is clear that he had the tools for undertaking virtually all aspects of clock making including engraving and his stock of brass, clock bells, and lines in much that he must have been quite a prolific maker. Yet only two clocks with his name are ever known. So how sad is that? Clocksmiths may have often been assumed to be those clockmakers with a blacksmithing background, and clocks with heavy and crude ironwork have been described as clocksmith work. While many country-long case clocks were undoubtedly made by first, second, or later generation, blacksmiths, they would not necessarily have been called clocksmiths. The known work of the clocksmith, Dale Deal, cannot, with any stretch of the imagination, be described as crude or naive. Other clockmakers are also known who did have a blacksmithing-type background, yet never called themselves clocksmiths. Francis Tatum of Locus, Derbyshire, was apprenticed to his father as a blacksmith, while James Woolley of nearby Cander was in turn apprenticed to Francis Tatum against a blacksmith. Despite this, both Tatum and Woolley became well-known clockmakers, but did not call themselves clocksmiths clocksmiths have also been described as men who fashion all or most clocks of a part. For example, just the components for clockmakers to make two finished clocks. This would apply to such men as Collard and Rawlings. But this was clearly not the case for all those men who called themselves clocksmiths, as many of them signed and sold the clocks that they made. Alternatively, it may be thought that the clocksmith, as a natural extension of the term blacksmith, forged the ironwork of a clock, and this is how Rees uses the word. The clocksmith forges the steel pieces for the arbors, pinions, pallets, rack, hammer, detents, etc. A link is suggested as James Sketch of Silverton, Ayrshire, was a clocksmith in 1780-1821. to 1821. While James Scotch and Son were clockwork manufacturers in eighteen twenty-five to sixty-two, and John Scotch was a manufacturer of steel clockwork in eighteen hundred to fifty-five. So, despite these references, this does not generally seem to be the case, as those making iron and steel parts usually quite successfully stylize themselves as a clock and iron forger or clock pinion forger. Ree's use of the term may well have been applied to those who did the forging work in a large clock-making concern, where each man specialized in one task, rather those working independently in supplying parts to the trade. It has to be admitted that there does not appear to be any other contemporary definition or description of a, block, of a, of a clocksmith, and we can only surmise its use, usage and knowledge of those workers who effectively used this term. While the term was in use in most parts of England, it may be significant that of 23 clocksmiths recorded as taking apprentices from 1790 to 1792, only two are from the north of England, one each from Belfordshire, Northamptonshire and Surrey. The rest, almost 80% are from Kent and Sussex in the far southeast of England. It may be well that the time it was an occupation that, although it should be used just by those who made components or even completed movements for others to add a dial or to put into a case, was preferred by working clockmakers to distinguish themselves from those who were merely um, creating assembled parts, largely made by others, or only did repairs. So in the same way that the trade of watchmaker had been uh, had become debased to that of a watch repairer and a retailer, the clockmaker in the eyes of the public was often no more than a dealer or repairer in a wide range of goods. That we can be reasonably sure about, if it was a term used by those who got their hands on. Um, Hands dirty in making some or, or of all parts of a clock. So another route would, which uh, a tradesman could become a clockmaker was that of a whitesmith. The word has two distinctively different meanings. The first is that a t- of a tinsmith or worker of white metals, such as pewter, though he would more correctly be called a pewterer. Whitesmith is also a term used for a finisher or polish of metal goods, as opposed to the forger of larger items. For example, blacksmith, and this is the definition that concerns me here. So a whitesmith would take the forgings, the blacked goods, from the blacksmith, then file and polish them to the final white iron form. Such as training would be ideal for someone wishing to become a clockmaker. For instance, in 1741, Abraham Webb, clocksmith of Whitesmith of Y, in Kent, Took over the shop of Ashford of the recently deceased Arthur Hart, also a clockmaker, where all gentlemen and others may be furnished with all sorts of clocks, jacks, guns, and watches at reasonable rates. Also, watches repaired and all business in the trade of a clocksmith and whitesmith are carefully done. So, what is clear is that all these terms were originally used in that way. Though no doubt understood at that time, it was not clearly delineated, so that today we can only surmise the correct meaning. Also, some trades had a higher social standing in the community than others. The trade of watchmaker appears to have much more highly regarded than that of clockmaker, even though no watch had ever, no one had ever had a watch with a maker and the name on the dial. So it's very difficult that. Uh, the furniture, or but more usually the retailer. So some men who made the, or repaired both clocks and watches with a proviso, which uh, referred to be known as watchmakers and official documents rather than clockmakers, and watchmakers are even just clockmakers. So <clears throat> the feud between clock and watchmakers has now begun in this early stage. So even in the mid-17th century, Thomas Veal of Chew Magnus Somerset was called a watchmaker in the church records when he married in 1656. But he is only known for making lander clocks, and no watch bearing his name is known. So in the 18th century and particularly towards the end of it, many clockmakers who also dealt in watches preferred to be known as just watchmakers rather than as watchmakers, rather than watchmakers and clockmakers combination. So, examples in Kent included William Nash of Bridge, John Calkin of Canterbury, and Owen Jackson of Cranbrook. So, Jackson, whose father was a gunmaker, called himself a watch and gunmaker, and silversmith. And though clockmaker is not included. The number of clocks signed by him are known, including tavern clocks. Thomas and William Radford of Leeds advertised themselves in 1791 as goldsmiths, silversmiths, cutters of watchmakers, with no mention of the many clocks that they made. So when Samuel Deacon of Barton in uh, Lancashire retired in eighteen oh five, he became known as a watchmaker rather than that of a clockmaker, that he really had been. So likewise, a jeweler, goldsmith, or silversmith appears to have been more highly regarded than a watchmaker. The trade label of Edward Sanders a pool Dorset stated that the makes and mends all sorts of clocks and watches, after the best manner, by hands from London, but described himself as a goldsmith rather than either a clockmaker or watchmaker. Also, as the appropriate trade guild for Irish clockmakers was the uh, Dorham Goldsmiths Company, but many referred to themselves as goldsmiths rather than clockmakers. This is very... (laughs) <laughs> so, the making of both locks and clocks included the fabrication of small, intricate parts. So it is not surprising that some tradesmen were both clockmakers and locksmiths. The same can be said of the gunmaking, and the trades of gunmaking, lockmaking, and clockmaking overlapped. In a small town where there might be just enough demand for a man to work in just one of these trades. So it made sense to combine two or even three of them. John Dodd, clocksmith of Faversham, came from a family of gunsmiths and was related to the Green Hills of Maidstone, who were locksmiths, gunsmiths, and clockmakers, while the Barrett family of Canterbury also included as clockmakers, locksmiths, and gunsmiths. In the mid-17th century, during the English Civil War, especially East Kent, were the fightings had ceased in other parts of the country. And in the early 18th century, with the threat of the Jacobite uprising, these clockmakers, gunsmiths, would be busy making and repairing arms, but could pursue the trade of making clocks in more peaceful times. So after another, rather, in clockmaking was that of the bell founder. In this trade, there would be a restricted demand for church bells, as in the number of churches that would need new bells would be limited. Also, the distance above which it had become uneconomic to transfer large bells, which could weigh, oh, what'd you say over a half a ton or a ton and a half, or even just the materials if they were cast near the church, also limited the business. Hence, bells could be cast at imperfect intervals. Uh, And clocks were often made to fill in the time between bell making. When clockmakers would provide a small but more regular income, the Bilby family of Chewstoke and uh, Somerset, for instance, while being primarily bell founders, became prolific clockmakers throughout the 18th century. Bell founders, of course, were ideally placed to cast the brass parts for their clocks, and many well have supplied parts to other local makers, although the bilbies applies to have kept two of the sides of their home business quite separate and may have used components cast by a specialist clock founder rather than themselves. A country tradesman is often combined many of these many of these trades. Metalworking skills was just as a, a lack of all, uh, a jack of all trades called on to what to make or mend a wide variety of items so this was particularly so in america where the limited demand for clocks and the large distances between settlements was best settled by someone who could turn his hand on virtually anything so uh, a locksmith uh, a grocer etc an ingenious mechanic could be blended in with these other type of professions which was of the Yankee jack-of-all-trades. The inventory of the workshop shows that it was very complete, including tools for making clocks, so he was certainly not just a retailer. In medieval times, most towns and cities had borough charters restricting trade within their boundaries to freemen or apprentices of freemen. It was the local trade guilds who applied these characters to control their own particular trade. Those who were not freemen were restricted to trading from stalls on market days rather than from premises in the town. In Dorchester, a charter was granted in 1610 that allowed only free burghers or inhabitants of the borough to carry on a trade. The first mention of a clockmaker is 15 years later. When it is recorded that John Thomas, a Dutchman, complained, <coughs> complained against for using the trade of the clockmaker within the borough, and this was ordered to depart from the town by Monday next. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to continue the trades of the, uh, or the ancillary trades of the clockmaker, the clocksmith, as we said, the blacksmith, the whitesmith. So, uh, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, thanks for listening, and uh, look forward to continuation of Trade guilds and the Clockmakers Company next time. Take care. Be safe.